Let me ask you to open up your Bibles this morning and let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I've entitled this message, Running Down a Dream. That's the title to a famous Tom Petty song. In that song, Tom Petty is chasing down his hopes for the future. Uh, The dream he is chasing is the dream of all that he can become. But in our passage this morning, Daniel is running down a very different kind of dream. And his life, as well as the lives of his friends, will all depend on whether or not he can find out this dream and its meaning. This is an exciting passage of Scripture. There is drama here. And there are important lessons for us. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 11. This is the very word of God. Well, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time Because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, in these verses we see King Nebuchadnezzar's predicament. He is having dreams. And these aren't typical dreams. He appears to be having the same dream over and over. It's a dream that has gripped his consciousness and is troubling him. He needs to know what it means. In the ancient world, it was often assumed that the gods would speak to people in strange and fantastic ways. So, for example, if an animal was born with some kind of strange deformity... It was considered an omen from the gods. A multi-headed ox born in a farmer's field would be brought to the kingdom's wise men 
so that they could determine what the gods were saying by this anomaly. Many wise men specialized in astrology, studying the movements of stars and scanning the skies for unusual signs. And these too were messages from the gods. Uh, Then there were dreams, especially vivid, uh, repeated dreams. And these were widely thought to be messages from the divine. And so Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that his gods are telling him something. And he fears what it might be. And so he gathers his wise men together to help him understand. And his wise men are given to us in this text by their specialty. Some are magicians. Others are enchanters, others sorcerers, still others are called Chaldeans. The magicians were those men especially trained in the magic arts, like those men in Egypt who turned their staffs to serpents in the presence of Pharaoh and Moses. There is some evidence that these magicians were also the best trained in dream interpretation. The enchanters were actually more like ancient doctors, They were skilled at reading the signs of what was wrong with folks and then prescribing certain concoctions and rituals to get rid of the sickness. They likely also had some skills in casting spells. The sorcerers specialized in spells and were those skilled in charms and incantations. And then finally, the word Chaldeans is likely a catch-all phrase uh, referring to all sorts of wise men. The Babylonians as a people were often called Chaldeans in part because of their attraction to such supernatural practices. So what does the Bible say about all this? Well, there are three key points to make. The first is that God forbids his children from participating in sorcery, witchcraft, and other dark arts. In Exodus twenty-two eighteen, for example... God's law declared, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Leviticus 19, verse 31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. In the New Testament, in Galatians 5, verse 20, sorcery is listed as a work of the flesh which is to be put away from Christians. Those who walk in the Spirit of God do not participate in such things. Second, the Bible teaches us that it is not only wicked, but it is also foolish to turn to dark practices for answers. After all, we have our God to turn to. Isaiah 8 verse 19 says, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? You see, we are to go to God in prayer and search the scriptures for guidance and direction. It is foolish to turn elsewhere when we have Him. And then third, and this is sobering, involvement in dark practices is involvement with demons. You see, the Bible doesn't claim that these wise men were all frauds. These Chaldeans are not presented to us in this passage as tricksters. Uh, Certainly some may have been. But the scriptures do seem to indicate that these folks really could perform supernatural feats. 
How? Well, through the false gods that they worshipped and represented. Uh, Yes, it is absolutely true that the Babylonian gods like Marduk and Ishtar, these were false gods. They had no power at all. But remember that the worship of pagan gods is in fact the worship of demons that do exist. Deuteronomy 32 verses 16 and 17 make this connection for us. Talking about Israel's idolatry and the worship of false gods. The passage says this, They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked Him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so you see, while these gods, um, so while the gods these wise men represented were not gods in fact, They were demonic powers. And we must not forget that Satan and his demons do have great powers. We remember how Satan had the power to transport himself and Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Or how before that he caused all the kingdoms of the world to pass before the eyes of Jesus. Deuteronomy 13 warns of prophets who come in the name of God performing signs and wonders and yet proved to be false prophets. Second Thessalonians talks about the lawless one, the Antichrist who comes by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Mount Hermon, are we willing to come to grips with this reality? With all of our sophistication, our advancement in knowledge, our great technology, are we still willing to acknowledge what is plainly taught in the pages of the Bible? There are real demonic forces at work in this world today. And if you are not aware of this, you are exactly where the devil wants you to be. If you are suspicious of this teaching, If you feel that this kind of talk is ignorant and primitive, not in keeping with our modern times, then you have fallen prey to the devil's very scheme. The most genius thing the devil ever did, as it is said, was to try and convince people that he doesn't exist. Indeed, the devil would have us believe that nothing spiritual exists. Not demons, not angels, not God, not our very souls. The devil would have us all be materialists, believing only in that which can be scientifically proven. Do not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. We must, be, we must put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against him. Now, back to our account. Here are the best men that Nebuchadnezzar has. And these men know how to do their work. When the king needed a word from the gods, they they would work together to bring him that word. So some of these men would look at the stars. Others would cut open animals and study their entrails. Others would look at the behavior of animals. Others would pour oil into water and then study the resulting forms. While others would create smoke with a sensor and observe the shapes that the smoke created. And then as a team, the wise men would come together, they would reach their conclusion, and they would present their word 
to the king. And you see why they worked as a team. This way, if they all got it wrong, it wasn't just one person's neck that was on the line. But here, these men are given an impossible request. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need a word from the gods. He's already received it in a dream. He just wants to know what it means. And if he would tell them the dream that he had, this would be easy enough. There was well-established dream lore at this time that these wise men could have turned to in order to give Nebuchadnezzar some plausible explanation for his dream. But Nebuchadnezzar knew how easily these men could come up with some plausible explanation. What he wanted was the truth. And therefore, to ensure that he got the right interpretation, he first demanded that these men tell him his own dream. If they could do that, then he could be sure that their interpretation was right. Perhaps you've heard about the fellow who called up the psychic hotline. Before they would give him his psychic reading, they asked for his credit card number. And he said simply, if you're psychic, don't you already know it? You tell me my credit card number. Well, in a sense, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here in this passage. The key verses of this whole section is verses 10 and 11. So look again at verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not without flesh. So what are verses 1 through 11 about? Well, they are about the limitations of men. No matter how skilled people are, and even the darkest arts, there are certain things that man simply cannot do. The stars, the entrails of animals, oil in water, these are not going to help. And now, with their necks on the line, these men find themselves helpless and hopeless. Now, Herman, there are times in our lives when we find ourselves in exactly the same situation. No matter how much we want to solve a problem, there is simply nothing that we can do. We don't have the answers. We don't have the means. Sometimes the issue is with people in our lives that we love dearly, and we would give up our very lives to help them if we could. But there's just nothing we can do. Sometimes the issue is in our own lives. An incurable disease. A wrong that has been done to us. Wrongs that we've done to others with consequences that cannot be undone. And until we acknowledge our helplessness, we will find ourselves anxious and defeated, discouraged and depressed. So look at what happens next, beginning in verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. 
He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. In these verses, we are reminded that Daniel and his friends are included among the wise men of Babylon. This was the kind of education they had been given at the command of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Frankly, the education of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego uh, was likely more like something Harry Potter would have received at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry than it was like the kind of education we received at the schools we attended. Now, we assume that as faithful followers of God, uh, these young men received this education differently than others. They viewed what they were learning in light of what they knew to be true about God. And I think it is telling that Daniel and his friends are not included among the court astrologers and sorcerers and others who first speak with Nebuchadnezzar about this dream. I think we can be sure that these young men were preferring other specialties rather than these. These were God-honoring young men, and they knew what the Jewish law said about sorcery. By the way, Daniel and his friends are now likely in their mid to upper teens. And they are brand new graduates of Nebuchadnezzar's school. If you'll remember, the first chapter of Daniel ended with their season of education coming to an end and them being tested before the king himself. And we are told there that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. That verse alone tells us that though they were trained in the ways of Babylonian wise men, they were different from them. They were different from the magicians, different from the enchanters. They're they're not listed alongside those groups. The wisdom and understanding that Daniel and his friends had came from God, not from these wicked practices. And we are told that this event here happened in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Remember, Judah was sieged, and these exiles were taken before Nebuchadnezzar was actually king. Uh, He did become king later that year, after the exiles had been taken, probably towards the end of the year. The next year was considered the first year of his reign. And here in Daniel 2, we are in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So while this may sound confusing at first, this is Nebuchadnezzar's second full year in power, but it's these boys' third year in Babylon. It is their graduating year, and here we are at the point where they have already just graduated. And this helps explain why Nebuchadnezzar granted Daniel's request to spare their lives and to give them some more time. It was likely just a few weeks, perhaps a few months, that had passed since the king had assessed Daniel and his friends and had been very impressed. And therefore, for Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to hold off his decree of death for all the wise men, and he's going to postpone it for a short time to see if Daniel might be able to provide an answer for him. So now, all eyes are on Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is expecting an answer from him. 
and it needs to come fast. And so with the fate of many on his shoulders, what will Daniel do? Well, look at what he does in verses 17 through 19. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. With lives on the line and an incredible burden upon him, Daniel turns to prayer. And he doesn't just turn to his own prayers. He goes to the other faithful men in his life, his friends in the faith, his brothers in the faith, and he asks them to pray as well. In fact, they all appear to be staying in the same house. They are bunkmates. And you can imagine them kneeling together, crying out to God, not only for their own sakes, but even for the lives of these pagan wise men. We have these teenage boys gathered together, praying, asking particularly that God would do for them what only God can do. That God would reveal to them the dream of the king and tell them what it meant. And God did. He heard and he answered the prayer of these young men. Mount Hermon, have we forgotten the power of prayer? Even now there are many in our church family facing almost impossible situations. There is hurt and there is pain and there is confusion. There are obstacles in dealing with lost loved ones and broken relationships. Some in here may feel like you are just floundering in the midst of financial trouble. Others may be dealing with depression and an inward darkness or sadness that just won't go away. We are too quick to run to despair. We are too quick to throw in the towel and act in ungodly ways. The stakes in Babylon were high, but no circumstance is too big for our God. Indeed, He often sets up these tough circumstances so that he can reveal his glory as he answers in power the prayers of his people. But we must pray. We must pray. Hudson Taylor, uh, his dates are 1832 to 1905, was on his first journey to China as a missionary when the ship he was on came into the doldrums. This is a situation that sometimes happens when sailing near the equator. Basically, there is a little breeze at night, but during the day, there is no wind at all. And so during the evening, the wind pushes the ship a little forward, and then during the day, the current may pull the ship right back, and no progress is made. And obviously, this is a very dangerous predicament to be stuck in if if it continues for very long. And Taylor says, We were in dangerous proximity to the north of New Guinea. And Saturday night had brought us to a point some 30 miles off the land. And during the Sunday morning service, which was held on deck, I could not fail to see that the captain looked troubled. He frequently went over to the side of the ship. 
When the service was ended, I learned from him the cause. A vain current was carrying us towards some sunken reefs, and we were already so near that it seemed improbable that we would get through the afternoon in safety. After dinner, the longboat was put out, and all hands endeavored without success to turn the ship's head from the shore. After standing together on the deck for some time in silence, the captain said to me, Well, we've done everything that can be done. Now we can only await the result. A thought occurred to me, and I replied, No, there is one thing we have not done yet. What's that? he queried. Four of us on board are Christians. Let us each retire to his own cabin and in agreed prayer ask the Lord to give us immediately a breeze. He can as easily send it now as at sunset. The captain complied because he was one of those Christians with this proposal. I went and spoke to the other two men. And after prayer with the carpenter, we four retired to wait upon God. I had a good but very brief season in prayer and then felt so satisfied that our request was granted that I could not continue asking and so I very soon went back up on deck. The first officer, a godless man, was in charge. I went over and asked him to let down the corners of the main sail which had been drawn up in order to lessen the useless flapping of the sail against the rigging. What would be the good of that? He answered roughly. I told him we had been asking a wind from God and that it was going to come immediately and we were so near the reef by this time that there was not a minute to lose. With cursing and a look of contempt, he said he would rather see a wind than hear of it. But while he was speaking, I watched his eye, following it up to the royal. And there, sure enough, the corner of the topmost sail was beginning to tremble in the breeze. Don't you see? The wind is coming. Look at the royal, I exclaimed. No, it's only a cat paw, he rejoined. It's a mere puff of wind. Cat's paw or not, I cried. Pray, let down the mainsail. Give us the benefit. And this he was not slow to do. In another minute, the heavy tread of the men on deck brought up the captain from his cabin to see what was the matter. The breeze had indeed come. And in a few minutes, we were plowing our way at six or seven knots an hour through the water. And though the wind was sometimes unsteady, we did not altogether lose it until after passing the Palau Islands. And thus God encouraged me, before ever landing on China's shores, to bring every variety of need to Him in prayer and expect that He would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help each emergency required. Dear friends, have we learned that lesson? Have we learned to bring every variety of need to Him in prayer? Have we learned to expect that God will honor the name of the Lord Jesus and the promises He has made to us? Uh, Friends, what is going on in your life right now that is too big for God? No matter how large the difficulty might be, I promise you it is as a speck of dust compared to Almighty God. His is a strong right arm and His commitment is to you, dear Christian. You are His child. Take your every need to God in prayer. 
Don't go to Facebook or Twitter to vent. Don't turn to gossiping. Don't turn to excessive sleeping or alcohol or overeating or Netflix binging. Don't turn in on yourself and start isolating yourself from friends and the local church. No, in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your loneliness, there is only one thing for you to do. Hear the command of God. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. To God. Oh, may we be a people who know the joy and the benefits of prayer. And you don't even have to pray alone. You're in a room full of people who would love to pray with you and for you. Let's close this morning by looking at verses 19 through 23. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. How does Daniel respond to God's mercy? How does he respond to God revealing to him the answer that would save so many lives? Daniel blesses his God. Daniel praises God. And the point of his praise is this. It is his God who is the true God and brings true help. Wisdom and might do not belong to the false gods of Babylon. Wisdom and might belong to Jehovah, to Yahweh. Friends, we know from the New Testament that Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God with whom there is all wisdom and might. It is Christ who can give you the help and answers you need as you pray to Him. It is Christ who is powerful to save you from hell itself and from hellish situations Don't depend on yourself. Renounce ungodly ways and turn to Christ in prayer. And trust Him above all else. Jesus Christ is faithful. He will care for you. Let's pray.